This is the What Now Podcast. We need good Samaritans who are like, oh my goodness, this, this person's dying. They were, they've been attacked and they're bleeding out. And people who stop and don't worry about where they're headed and just say, there's an emergency here and I'm going to get off my donkey and bind these wounds and sit with this person and lift them up and carry them to safety and get them to a place where they're loved and supported and that they can receive the healing power of Christ. This is the What Now Podcast, where we discuss the culture and beliefs in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in an honest and faithful way in an effort to encourage, uplift, and inspire. I am Mary Alice Hatch, your host. Join me as I speak with Charlie Bird, former BYU mascot, as he shares how Christ-like love is the catalyst to connection and better understanding. Charlie shares how to interact with friends and loved ones with a different orientation in a productive way that fosters love and inclusion. Today, I'm here with Charlie Bird. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you back. This is our second interview together, and I'm happy to have you talk about your new book, Expanding the Borders of Zion. I remember our first interview like it was yesterday. It really doesn't seem that long ago. I know. It was a while ago. I mean, time flies when you're having fun, right? Yes. Yes, yes. So let's jump right in. I really want to go through your book because I feel like you have a really good comprehensive overview about inclusion and your journey and what you went through. And in the beginning of the book, you talk about living in New York City and meeting up in Central Park with a good friend named Jack, where you'd have these conversations about your concerns about being gay in the culture. And how did that friendship start? Yeah, actually, it started pretty organically out of almost necessity. So I moved to New York and I was at the point where I was like, I have to be out to everyone I know, just because I was sick of pretending or lying or feeling weird. And I was like, it's kind of a fresh start. It's in a new place. And I figured that, you know, I'd heard that New York was a little more accepting than other places I'd lived. So I think just by nature of being out, I was like in conversations, people would be like, oh, do you know Jack? You must know Jack then because he was also in the ward. And so really that's the way we met. And that was the only context we had for each other was that we were both gay and we were both still going to church and trying to make something work. And so truly at the beginning, it was, I don't know if I would say awkward, but it was just kind of like we were lurched into this, like you two are in the same camp, so you need to know each other sort of thing. And at first I was new, I was scared of a lot of things. I was like, I'm not sure if this is like weird just because we're both gay, we have to be friends. But very quickly we picked up on the fact that we were both going through a lot of the same things, living in the same place, in the same culture, in the same ward even. The, the microculture was the same. And really what ended up happening was we realized we needed each other. We needed conversation. We needed connection. And we needed to be able to talk to someone who really understood what things felt like. So we made this wonderful habit of walking through the park every two weeks or so and just catching each other up on what we were thinking, what we were feeling. And as we moved through our journeys, we were both able to grow and help each other grow. And it was really, really special. Yeah. I mean, was he further along on coming out than you were? Like, was he just recently out too? I think he'd been out a little bit longer, but it's interesting, you know, because depending on someone's life and family relationships, everyone kind of comes out at a different rate to different people, it seems. And so I think I was probably more out, but he'd been out to more people longer. And then he started dating before I did as well. So he was sharing experience of what it was like to be going on dates and trying to like 
find romantic connection and also still exercise faith in Jesus Christ and show up and worship at church on Sunday, which is a really tricky space. And he really has pioneered that area and taught me a lot about really just how to maintain faith when everyone else thinks you should throw it away. Yeah, what an incredible friendship to have when you're just beginning the coming out stages and it's new and you're trying to navigate it. And he's kind of a little bit further down the road than you were. Yeah, he was. He was older. He had a better job than I did. So I looked up to him in a lot of ways. Yeah, it kind of helped you see what it was going to look like potentially in the future for someone who was faithful, trying to stay faithful. I mean, in the book, you talk about that he had this partner named Omar, which I thought was really fascinating because Omar wasn't Christian. Yeah, Omar was actually agnostic, but had grown up Muslim. That's a big change. I love how Jack looked beyond the barriers imposed by religion on gay men. And he invited his partner, Omar, to church to kind of expose him to the doctrine of the gospel and the powerful impressions of the spirit, which he felt there. It's really interesting because in society, there's this assumption that gay people don't go to church and don't really belong there. I think the camps have been set up and, and they, it seems very staunch. And Jack realized is buying into that just keeps people away from Christ. And so he met Omar, who's just wonderful. He's one of the most wonderful people I've ever met. And he truly had never learned about Jesus Christ, like had never opened scripture just by the nature of where he grew up in his life. It just was never really afforded to him. And Jack wouldn't let that be like he wasn't okay with that. He was like, here's someone I love who's a child of God and they deserve to know Christ. They deserve to be able to have some of the knowledge and blessings that I have. That was really, really bold. And I think that's how more of us should be, to not put barriers on who could or should or would be interested in worshiping. Totally. And I love that you said what you just said. I love how Jack didn't see that as a barrier, but a bridge, right? He was a bridge to expose Armour to Christianity. He didn't let his relationship with this man hold him back from exposing him to the church doctrine. And I thought it was bold, too, because Jack was in this place where he was kind of like willing to compromise aspects of his worship in order to have a relationship, which is really hard. That's a really hard position to be in. And, and, you know, he was worried. He was like, if Omar wants to join the church and wants to go through the temple, we would have to break up because just as a gay couple, you can't really do that right now. And he's like, I don't know if it will ever be. There's so many questions. And I was like, are you willing to be broken up with because you invited someone to church. And he was like, yeah, like Omar should have all of the blessings and all of the opportunities that I've had. And I just thought that was so humble. And what a Christ-like perspective. Oh, yeah. I mean, that he definitely has a testimony of Christ and he's willing to sacrifice a relationship he cares about just so someone else can know what that feels like. That's powerful. That's so powerful. And it's really taught me since then, I've met many other LGBTQ individuals who are in some form keeping their faith alive and bridging this awkwardness or the uncertainty of this space. And I've just seen some of the most faithful, faithful people who continually show up and care. And I just think we need the faith of LGBTQ people in our meeting houses. We do. And I love that they participated despite the restrictions too. They literally asked to clean the church. They've been together for a very long time and moved to a space where Jack was unable to go to the temple and he turned his temple recommend in. And that same day said, I want an assignment to clean the church. I want to serve. I want to help. And it was really amazing. That is amazing. 
That is amazing. Okay, so I want to shift gears here. I'm from Washington, D.C. So when you lived in Washington, D.C., you had this interesting cultural experience where you lived. Can you tell me about that and your director? I loved that whole that whole piece in the book. Yeah, of course. Well, first of all, D.C. is like the best place ever. And it's probably like, <laughs> remember in the Book of Mormon when they talk about the waters of Mormon and how they just love it because something so wonderful happened there? And to them, it's like the best place. That's how I feel about D.C. because of this experience. I was homeless for a few days when I moved there. It was just for the summer internship. And I thought that I would find housing quicker, but it was really difficult. And truly, like I was just sleeping on random people's couches and trying to find a place to live. And by what I absolutely accredit to divine design, I was able to find this place called the International Student House. And essentially, a wealthy family many years ago had donated their mansion to the betterment of education in that they converted it into a, a dorm, like a boarding house for any international students or master's students or internship, like people doing internships. So just because of that, you get a certain demographic of people, right, from different places who aren't from the area, right? But they took it a step further, and it was so fascinating because in that application process, they were really focused on diversity and making sure that each individual who lived there was different. And then there was just one, I mean, there was obviously other rules, but like this house rule that everyone respected and followed was there was dinner every evening at 6.30. And so what happened was you had 45 to 60 people who were all from different countries, different backgrounds, different religions, different ethnic backgrounds different political affiliations. Everyone was so different and was almost hand-selected for their diversity in order to be able to live in this place. And we're eating dinner together every evening at 6.30 in this really, I mean, big enough for everyone, but kind of like an intimate space where conversations happened. And it was just so thrilling and challenging and wonderful to be able to be in a space that was so diverse, so different, and be forced to continually come back and eat together. Well, I loved how intentional the director was about having so much diversity and creating opportunities for them to connect at this mandatory dinner because dinner invites discussion in a way that's different than just coming and going of our lives. When you're sitting next to one, you're breaking bread. It's a different conversation. Yeah. And what ended up happening is you think of like Thanksgiving dinner with the family, the old quip about how like conservative grandpa and liberal granddaughter. And there's like jokes about how everyone comes together at Thanksgiving and argues. Honestly, that was happening every night because everyone was so different. And yet we couldn't disengage because we had to come back the next day and work through it and break bread with someone that you fought with last night or argued with the night before. It was really, really special. And I think it led to a lot of emotional maturity and social maturity on my part, and really just a lot of learning, listening to the conversations. Yeah. How did your perspective change about others in different cultures because of the mandatory dinners? You had some interesting conversations from people very different from you. Yeah, it was interesting because a lot of the conversations with me came to religion. That was like my diverse factors that I was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ. And people were very interested. A lot of foreigners knew that it was an American religion and they were interested in that aspect of it. And so I ended up having a lot of conversations with people from Hindu or Islamic or Jewish faith and really just like talking about values and principles and faith 
And, you know, there was one conversation in particular that it was me and someone from India and someone from Tel Aviv. And we were all just started talking about religion. And it was interesting to see that at the beginning, all of us were really on guard. I think we were all used to having our religion attacked or made fun of in certain ways. Because me showing up as a Christian, then there's this person who's Jewish and they didn't want to be, they were like, I, I always get judged for not believing in Christ the way other people think I should. Then the, the Hindu person was, there's just, everyone has always made assumptions about each of our religions and we were coming kind of on the defensive to this conversation. But quickly, as we talked, we realized that a lot of the things we believed, the core principles of our faith were very, very similar, that we could find respect and love for each other's faith and still keep our own faith the way that it was. And it was just so cool. It was just such a human experience. Yeah, I love the metaphor about inviting someone to your proverbial table, relating to what you're talking about with acceptance and understanding from those who are different from us and finding what you have in common. Yeah, there's this phrase that it's often used, love the sinner, hate the sin. And after that experience, I started saying, love the sinner, invite them to dinner. And I like that. Yeah, just because everyone there I could have classified as a sinner in some way. Everyone there was. We're all humans. And I think culturally, I was taught that when someone's different, or if someone smokes, or if someone whatever, then you should be careful with them and disengage and love the sinner, hate the sin, right? And I've realized since that what that does for me is just judge people, is it almost just invites judgment. And so if I say, you know, like, love a person and get to know them, it just shifted my whole perspective. Yeah, I mean, you talk about how in the Book of Mormon, Ammon chose connection instead of correction. Why is that such an important distinction? I think it's the proximity piece. It's almost like the direction you're going with. Because if you're trying to correct someone that's coming from a place of authority, that's coming from like a top-down approach. But I really think if you're trying to connect with someone, you're meeting them at eye level. And you really get to see you get to see things from their perspective and, and gain the proximity. And I just feel like it's a much more inspirational way to work with people and a much less judgmental way. It's less disarming for people too. If they know you're coming from a place of love, and I like in the Book of Mormon with Ammon, hit through his love and service, he was able to convert an entire nation. He yeah. wasn't like sitting there lecturing everybody. I mean, he was chopping the arms off the enemy, right? I mean, <laughs> right. He was showing his devotion through total dedication and service and love of others. Well, it's interesting because when he showed up, he said he would serve them according to their own customs. And I just think that's a really powerful metaphor. He didn't say, I'm going to serve you as long as you look and act the way I want you to. He said, I'm going to figure out who you are and I'm going to serve you the way you want to be served. And that was what allowed him the trust to be able to share the gospel. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I want to shift into this. A lot of heterosexual people, they aren't sure how to approach someone who's gay in an effort to kind of understand their perspective. What would be a disarming way to do that? Because I think in the culture, people are fearful or they are very judgmental. And so they have these preconceived notions about what's happening with people who are gay, which might be completely inaccurate. And most of the time it probably is. <laughs> So what would be a disarming way for someone to do that? Because I think people are hesitant. Yeah, I think that's a perfect segue. I see a lot of people in this space who are worried about condoning sin and worried about opening like a loving or proximate relationship with an LGBTQ individual. 
because they don't want it to contradict their beliefs. And I've noticed that what happens there is if you're always worried about condoning or defending the faith, that's another like strong theme I see where people are like, I want to defend my beliefs against this person. Really what that does is it brings you to the table on the defensive. It's like picking a fight before it's even there. And really, it seems like when people do that effectively, we're trying to protect Jesus against children of God. We're saying, stay away from my Jesus, like putting myself in between Jesus and the gay person. Does that make sense? And I just think, shouldn't we be putting Jesus right smack in the middle of this? Saying, there's, here's something that's confusing. Here's something I don't know. Here's a way I need to learn to love another person. I want Jesus right in the center because there's nothing more disarming than charity. There's nothing more disarming than the pure love of Christ. And if we can let those principles guide the conversations rather than coming on the defensive or worrying about condoning sin or worrying about other people's agency, just put Jesus in the middle. And, and I feel like if we can do that, or at least make a concerted effort to do so, then we're really going to get to know and love one another. That is so true. I feel like love is the catalyst to connection. It is. That's beautiful. You write that down. We need to put that on a vinyl. <laughs> Let's circulate it. Because unfortunately, there are stone throwers out there. And what do they need to understand? I mean, you have a wonderful platform. You're on a lot of podcasts. We have a lot of people listening to this podcast. And now you have an opportunity to say, what do people who throw stones need to understand? I think if you're throwing a stone, then you're too far away. You need to close that gap and see who you're throwing the stone at and see where it's hitting them. And proximity and connection is everything in this. It's going to clear up misconceptions. It's going to obliterate those preconceived notions. And it's going to help you see other individuals, whether they have a different sexual orientation or gender identity, it's going to force you to see them as children of God. And I really believe that that proximity piece is what's going to heal the contention in this space. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think a lot of people who are stone throwers, it's driven by fear and ignorance. They don't really understand what it's about. They're scared to get too close to it. They're scared of maybe like, it's not contagious. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> you can understand these things in a productive way. And I think some people are really scared to do that. It's not going to compromise their faith or belief system by accepting another child of God. Well, it reminds me of, it's either Mormon or Moroni who said, perfect love casteth out all fear. And for going through life and interacting with people from a fear-based approach, we're never going to be able to love them the way Christ has commanded us to. That is so true. I was just preparing my remarks. I'm getting interviewed by Richard Osler next week for the Listen, Love, and Learn podcast. Yeah. And there was something in his book that relates to this. And I was just glancing at my notes on my office desk about it. And I love this powerful quote by Sister McConkie, where she shares, the gospel of Jesus Christ does not marginalize people, marginalize people. And we have to fix that. And she's right. Yeah. It's so powerful. It is. And I have so much faith that it's not as hard as it seems. We look at the space of orientation and religion, and it seems so messy. And it seems like for so many years, so many people have been hurt or judged on, on all sides of this issue, you know? And yet, like, I've just found in my personal life that the solutions come so quickly and the grace and forgiveness that just flows in when you can meet someone where they're at and love them and ask sincere, honest questions really heals generations of turmoil. And it's so special. And I just want everyone to be able to experience that because it's so inspirational. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, 
how can we create more open dialogue in an effort to reduce that ignorance and that prejudice? What's a good way to open the dialogue on that? I'd say there's two things came to mind. First, if someone who's just like a straight orthodox or I don't want to say typical because no one's completely typical, but that feels really comfortable with the culture of the church, I would invite them to get to know people's stories. And if you don't have someone you know and trust enough to bring some of your questions to, there's resources now that that allow you to get that proximity to LGBTQ individuals, whether it's through books or podcasts or blogs. I would probably say a conversation would be the best, but there's stepping stones. And so I think there's power in actively saying, you know what, this is something that I want to be on my radar. And I think once you do that, you'll find points of contact. And I think that that's important for the one side to kind of disarm and say, I want to know about this. And then on the other side of that, I think that the LGBTQ people in the church, their openness matters. And coming out is scary and speaking up and talking about this can be really terrifying at times. But there's just something so interesting about in order for someone to know what's going on, you have to speak up. And I found that through my courageous acts of speaking up and and trying to be open and honest about this, it has led to healing. And if everyone's hiding who they are all the time, nobody gets to see, nobody sees you. I really think it takes two pieces of this, saying, I want to learn more, I'm open, and saying, I'm going to speak up and be open. I mean, I recently had a conversation with one of my loved ones who came out as queer in the last couple of years, and I just asked her, I really do want to understand this. Can you please help me understand? It's just from a very sincere place. Like, I care about her. I love her. And I want to understand where she's coming from. And she totally opened up to me about how she feels and what she thinks and what her perspective is. And and help me understand what queer is. I don't understand a lot of this. And it was really enlightening for me for her to open up and trust me with that information. That is such a cool story to share. I, I mean, that's how you do it. And I know a lot of people are worried about saying the wrong thing or messing up, or it's awkward if you feel like you aren't comfortable with a, a subject talking about it. And again, like you can't let fear stop you from, from practicing charity and and loving better. We just can't do that. And truly, like, if you're coming from a place of, I really don't know, but I want to know, if you say the wrong thing, you'll get grace. No one's expecting perfection immediately. Right, because the approach is sincere. Exactly. I sincerely do. I love this person, and I do want to understand. And so when it comes, I think, from a really sincere, vulnerable place where I'm trying, as an older person who doesn't understand it very much, that I want to know and I care about them enough to understand it and just listen. Because I didn't really say much. I just let her talk and explain it to me. Like, okay, so tell me this. And I said, and leading questions, like if there's anything that makes you uncomfortable that I'm asking you about, please tell me because I really do have questions. Yeah. I've noticed there's questions called like the grand tour questions. And essentially that just means like really open, like dialogue facing questions. I guess it'd be the difference between just asking questions that can't end in a yes or no, like how has this impacted you? What sort of feelings have you experienced? Like really allowing questions that allow conversation and it works. It really does. Can I ask, I'm curious, did you have any like hesitations or fears going into this conversation with your loved one? I did at first because I didn't want her to feel like I was prying or I was trying to get too into her personal life. I wanted to respect that. 
But she was so happy to tell me. She was like relieved to tell me. Yeah. And I thought, gosh, I should have done this two years ago. You know, like I'm skirting around and I don't know what to say. And I don't want to ever make her feel uncomfortable or feel like I'm not supporting her or anything like that. And I think that taught me that a lot of people feel that way. So when they skirt the issue or they avoid it, it's just because they don't know what to say. Yeah. And how tragic that that perhaps on the other end is viewed as rejection or discomfort with the person. Yeah, that's powerful. I mean, you have a really large social media following. So just kind of going back to what you were saying about being open and authentic about your life, you are very open and authentic with your life. Is that your goal with your platform? Yeah, I want people to have a stepping stone because in a lot of ways, my life and journey has been, I guess, like clean and palatable. I really do have love for the gospel and love for the church. And so I'm coming from this this perspective of like, I want to make this work. However it looks, I want to be involved. And I just have seen that that's a little bit easier place for people to go at first. So with my social media platform, I have a couple, I guess, goals. One of them is to just be a stepping stone place where people can say, I don't know about this. I don't really know anyone or I'm scared to have conversations with my loved ones who are gay but hopefully they can learn a little bit from me and set them on that trajectory. But then also I just prove that this isn't everything about me. My orientation is important often because it has to be. If it's impacting the way I'm viewed and treated, it very quickly becomes center of mind. But just in my general life, I am a lot more than just a gay person. And so I also think it's a fun way to show different aspects of my personality and just show that, hey, this is something I'm working through. This is part of my experience. and working through it. I'm celebrating it. I'm healing from any past trauma. And also I have a lot of other talents and ways that I can uplift and serve and entertain. And yeah, that's kind of my goal. Yeah, it helps people see you as a whole person, right? Like it's not just your orientation that you're gay. Well, you have a ton of gifts and talents and friends and it's an awesome platform that does give a comprehensive overview of you. Yeah, I think it's been really cool. And I'm blessed, honestly, that so many people are interested and that I'm able to occupy that space because I like it. I th- I like I like the entertainment factor of social media. I've always been a performer. And so I kind of get to keep a little of that. And I also like that it's a an effective way to educate and bring people in on a larger scale. Well, you have a good mix of like serious things like your Sunday questions and you seriously answer those. And then you have like all the fun stuff. And the dancing and the routines and all the fun things you're doing. And I think that's fun for people to gauge in and see, because that is one of the problems I've seen with the situations with the gay men and women, LGBTQ, the whole thing is that it always comes down to their sexuality and just their orientation. And they are so much more than that. Yeah. It's hard when you're viewing someone only as this, only as that. It impacts it. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'm Cosmo the Cougar at heart. I love to perform. I love to dance. I love to jump off things. And so people get a lot of that if they're following me. Although I'm not near as good as I used to be. I'm kind of a has-been these days. You need to do more of that. I have seen that Cougarettes video like a hundred (laughs) times. It's my favorite thing. If I'm having a bad day, I just throw that on. It's so funny because at the stadium in the mascot suit, like I would always do backflips. There's like this high railing and you just like jump off and do a backflip off of it. It's a crowd favorite. It shocks people every time because it's a pretty far jump. <laughs> anyway, I, I tried to do it. Actually, I was at the beach like a couple months ago and there was like a tall wall that ended in the sand. I was like, let's see if I can still do that. 
and it was not pretty. I was like, I'm out of practice. You didn't go home in a cast, did you? No, no. Luckily, it was a soft landing, but it was a a firm wake-up call that I'm getting older than I used to be. (laughs) No, it's fun. It's a fun aspect of your personality. And I just want to finish up with just asking you, you talk seriously in your book about the story of the Good Samaritan. And it was pretty heavy, the place you were in at a certain point in your time where you did not feel like you knew where you fit in and you were looking for Samaritans. How can we be more of a Samaritan to our LGBTQ brothers and sisters? I love the parable of the Good Samaritan because I think it's actually so relatable. And last time I read it, it just was so pertinent to this situation. And within LGBTQ members of the church and just individuals at large, you see a lot of mental health struggles and increased risk of suicidality. The latest figure I saw was that LGBTQ youth are almost five times as likely to attempt suicide compared to heterosexual peers. And those increased mental health problems aren't coming from, it's not some like, it's not because they're gay, it's because of the increased social complexity they face. It's because of less genuine connection. It's because of less safety and support. And there really are like huge systemic issues with LGBTQ suicide around us. So like a risk is death. And that sounds dramatic, but it it is like it's it's a problem. And I've also noticed a pattern of spiritual death where people aren't getting the support they need at church. They're feeling enmity toward God. They're feeling judged and outcast and rejected and and a lot of the, the negative feelings pull directly into a place of faith. So I think literally and figuratively, LGBTQ individuals within our community are dying physically and spiritually. And so I, I very much view them as this, the parable of this man who, who went through in Samaria, who was attacked by robbers and thieves and, and left to die in this desert. And in this story, there's a priest that walks by, but the priest is late for his shift at the temple. And it's like, oh, I don't have time to help that person. It's kind of like an unclean thing. That's a Samaritan. That's not someone that a religious person like me stops for. And the priest left and said, basically saying, I'm okay if this person dies because they're not, they're they're just a Samaritan. And I think we have people doing that in our culture saying, like, for religious reasons, we're not going to reach out to this dying LGBTQ individual because that's unclean and and we're late for church. And then you have this Levite who passes by as well who says, socially, it's unacceptable for me to interact with Samaritan, so I'm just going to awkwardly walk around and keep going. And and again, I think in our culture, culturally, it's not cool to befriend the LGBTQ individual at church. It, you get judgment. People are like, what are you doing? And it feels like almost dangerous or scary in people's minds because of that fear. So I think religiously and culturally, we have people who are seeing the issue, the, the physical and spiritual death, but they're downplaying it and awkwardly walking around because they don't want to have to deal with it. And I'm so sure that in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and surrounding culture, we need good Samaritans who are like, oh my goodness, this, this person's dying. They were, they've been attacked and they're bleeding out. And people who stop and don't worry about where they're headed and just say, there's an emergency here and I'm going to get off my donkey and bind these wounds and sit with this person and lift them up and carry them to safety and get them to a place where they're loved and supported and that they can receive the healing power of Christ. 
And I long for a world where that can happen because it will lead to less death spiritually and and physically. That is really powerful. And I just want to end on that because I think that's a really powerful message. How can we be the good Samaritan on our way to the church, on the way to the temple, on the way to our ministering visit? How can we be the good Samaritan? It's a powerful message. Thank you so much for being so vulnerable and so open with us today. Of course. Thank you for having me. You have a powerful message. Thank you. And for those who want to read your book, Expanding the Borders of Zion, where can they find that? Yeah, so it is available at Deseret Book, online on Amazon. I have a website, mrcharliebird.com, where you can get it. Honestly, right now, I I self-published this and I just hired a distribution company and they're pushing it to a lot of different stores. Probably Google it and just see wherever feels like the best place to get it for you. Terrific. Thank you so much for your time today, Charlie. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the What Now podcast. I invite you to share this episode with family, friends, and anyone you think it might help. Just click on that share button wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're on Instagram, follow us at Podcast What Now for inspirational messages and highlights from our past and present episodes. We never say goodbye. We say what now. This has been a What Now podcast production.